Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the New Books and Philosophy channel of the New Books Network. My name is Robert Talese, and I'm the co-host of the channel, along with Carrie Figder. In our bi-monthly podcast, we'll be talking with philosophers about their newly published books. Today, I'll be talking with Professor Gerald Gauss about his new book, The Order of Public Reason, A Theory of Freedom and Morality in a Diverse and Bounded World. This book was published this year with Cambridge University Press. And Jerry Gauss is the James E. Rogers Professor of Philosophy at the University of Arizona. The other day, I was driving in my car with my wife, and while we were at a stoplight, she witnessed a pedestrian littering. She promptly rolled down the car window and shouted to the pedestrian, Hey, pick that up. Lamentably, the pedestrian ignored her and walked on. It's interesting to consider the nature of my wife's action. She was not merely telling the pedestrian that she would like for him to pick up after himself. She was not simply expressing that she wanted the pedestrian to pick up his litter. Rather, she was commanding him to do so. She was asserting that there is something that the pedestrian must do. And when he walked on, we both felt that he had done something blameworthy. This little episode is of a kind that's familiar enough. Having a society at all, seems to require that we sometimes take ourselves to have the authority and the standing to tell others what they must do. And governments claim to have a rather extensive authority over their citizens. Now, the deep question is this. Can relations of authority among free and equal persons be morally justified? Or is it all really just a matter of some people pushing other people around? This is a fundamental and complex problem for ethical theory and political philosophy. And Gauss's The Order of Public Reason is an attempt to solve it. Accordingly, the book is chock-filled with arguments and insights. There's a lot to discuss. So let's turn directly to the interview. Hello, Jerry Gauss. Hi, Bob. Today on New Books in Philosophy, we are talking with Gerald Gauss about his exciting new book, The Order of Public Reason, A Theory of Freedom and Morality in a Diverse and Bounded World, which was published this year by Cambridge University Press. It's an excellent and important contribution. In fact, I might even go so far as to say it's an achievement of sorts. Um, The Order of Public Reason makes a welcome return uh, to what we might call the big ideas style of political philosophy. In this book, Uh, Jerry offers and defends what we might think of as a unified theory of our moral, social, and political lives, drawing freely, and very helpfully, I should add, from moral philosophy, psychology, game theory, economic theory, cognitive science, uh, and many other uh, fields that often aren't discussed among political philosophers. Um, So there's a lot in this book, folks, uh, and we're going to try to talk about uh, a huge chunk of it, at least. But first, Jerry, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to philosophy? 
Well, Bob, as anyone who's read my work knows, I come from Buffalo. The Buffalo Bills figure highly in almost everything I write. Um, I was went to the State University of New York at Buffalo, sort of a working class family, and it was the university down the street. And I first came to political philosophy through Hobbes. Um, I was a sophomore, and this was the sort of the tail end of the student rebellions and everyone was talking about Marx and how we could love each other and I read Hobbes and I thought well it would certainly be nice if first we didn't kill each other <laughs> and, and so Hobbes was a formative solution uh, formative work for me I read Hobbes in undergraduate work several times but then after reading Hobbes I also had two other formative courses one was a full semester course on Rawls the theory of justice which had just come out and then the last year was actually a course on Amatra Sen's Collective Choice and Social Welfare. These three figures, Hobbes, Rawls, and Amatra Sen, have colored all my thinking about political philosophy from the time I was a sophomore right till right now. And I always go back to these three figures who seem to me sort of the pivotal figures in my way, anyway, of thinking about political philosophy. Well, that's excellent. And um, that kind of diverse background from the theoretical to the more empirical certainly comes out uh, in your work. And uh, the new book, The Order of Public Reason, uh, is no different. Um, but before we get into the details uh, of the book, um, it seems to me that the, uh, the Order of Public Reason is motivated by a very basic problem, uh, namely how to reconcile the freedom and equality of each individual with the fact that social life involves in, uh, inevitably, uh, various occasions on which some people get to tell others what to do. Uh, in short, this is the problem of uh, rendering freedom and equality uh, consistent with authority in some very uh, broad sense. Can you tell us a little bit about the problem and the various ways in which uh, political philosophers have responded to it? Uh, again, in the more general terms, we'll get to talk about your own solution to this problem uh, in a little bit. Yeah, that was a really nice way of summarizing the core problem. B, if I expanded a little bit, I might say there's three different commitments of liberal political philosophy which lie at the foundation of this book. And the worry is that these commitments conflict and can't all be honored. One way of thinking about the whole book is to show that there's a possibility that all three of these commitments are possible in a unified view of the world. The first commitment comes from the core social contract understanding of the problem of, of, of public life, and that is that when individuals employ their private reason on matters of politics, morality, and religion, their private reason leads them to deep disagreements about these matters. And my reading of the social contract tradition, coming back to Hobbes, who I just mentioned, is that it's not simply a matter of self-interest, as some people depict Hobbes as a clash of self-interest, but Hobbes, I think, is clear that it's a clash of private reason. When we look at the laws of nature, we come to different interpretations of the laws of nature. As one point, Hobbes says, when there any time there's a controversy concerning men, their reason leads them to disagreement. So the first fundamental commitment, which I see is rising out of the whole social contract tradition, is that the private use of our reason leads to disagreement, which sort of forms the problematic for the next two. The second commitment is that we're, as also we see the social contract theorists, we're committed in some fundamental sense to seeing each other as free and equal moral persons, 
that no one has natural moral authority over anyone else. The deep disagreement wouldn't be a problem if some people, as Filmer thought, had natural marks of authority. So although we disagree, it's clear that the fathers rule, sons obey, so the disagreement's not a problem. The disagreement of the social contract theory is a problem when the fact that none of us has a mark of authority, so that no one is naturally to defer to someone else. And the third commitment is that social life requires rules and laws with authority. We can't have a cooperative social life unless there's rules where I can stand on the rules and claim to tell you what to do. These three commitments seem to be in conflict. We need common authority. There's no one who naturally has authority over anyone else. And yet, when we reason about these things, we disagree. So it's not as if we all agree on the same sort of authority. These three commitments, I think, form a core of all liberal, plausible liberal views. And it's not clear how they all can be reconciled. The book is a long reconciliation project. Right. And it's a, it's quite a, a, a large philosophical problem. And um, one of the really striking and I think uh, refreshing things about the order of public reason is that you bring um, to this very large, fundamental, multifaceted, complex philosophical problem, um, such a broad range of um, uh, considerations from philosophy uh, and beyond. Um, and before we get into that, though, I want to ask uh, some, again, a more general kind of question, um, because it seems as if uh, the order of public reason uh, is, um, uh, is, is novel, at least given the, the current um, uh, status uh, of political theory, in that it's got a kind of ambitiousness to it. Um, that uh, political philosophy of the past couple of decades, mainly uh, and uh, largely following uh, Rawls's uh, prescription that philosophy has to uh, stay on the surface and uh, uh, um, apply the principle of toleration to itself and this sort of thing, where we've seen uh, a lot of uh, political philosophy being done in a very, um, how should we say, modest way, careful not to make any sweeping claims, trying to avoid... Uh, deep philosophical controversies. It seems as though the order of public reason, in a way, attempts to return to uh, a broader style of political philosophy. So maybe um, one thing that uh, our listeners might be interested in hearing you, you talk about is something about the, the methodological commitments you have as a political philosopher. That is, the book both brings together uh, considerations from outside of philosophy to bear on political philosophical issues, but also the book has a kind of ambitiousness. It's an attempt to really bring together uh, different aspects of our moral lives, both the political side, the social side, and the interpersonal side, uh, and bring them together into one uh, one account. Um, so could you say a little bit about those motivations and those methodological or we might call metaphilosophical commitments that you have? Well, the first explanation is just modesty is not one of my own virtues. So <laughs> I tend not to be modest when I do anything. But there's a sense in which I'm trying to draw on a way of thinking about morality that ties morality and political philosophy much more closely together than perhaps contemporary Rawlsians would like. Remember, there's a there's a Rawlsian view that there's a sharp distinction between the political and the moral, and it's not also clear whether that also is a pretty sharp distinction between the political and the social. 
Right. There's some sense which is surprising because Rawls himself is so deeply influenced by Hegel. And one thing that's not an element of Hegelian philosophy is a strong distinction between the social life, moral life, and political life. One of the things I worked on in a, in, when I was a young man was Hegelian political philosophy. And there's a, I've certainly was influenced by the Hegelian idea that the moral life is really part of a social ethical life. So when I was trying to think of one of the reasons why I was so unhappy with Rawls's political turn, it was this strict bifurcation of the political from the social. And when I look back at an earlier train of thinking in social and moral philosophy, pre-Rawls, some things we might say stuff lost in the Rawlsian hurricane, there was a really interesting and vibrant tradition of seeing moral life as arising out of social life, um, particularly the work of Kurt Beyer and Peter Strassen, had a view of morality which wasn't Hegelian in sort of an absolute idealist sense, but it was Hegelian in the sense that it saw morality and ethical life as arising out of social life. If you adopt that view of morality, then to do moral theory is to do a certain sort of social theory, it's to understand the way social norms work, and to do morality is to understand many of the problems of political philosophy, that is that morality becomes an interpersonal justificatory enterprise rather than a first-person understanding of the moral truth. So once you get uncomfortable with the Rawlsian insistence that the political is a very distinct sphere, and you're led to this other view of morality, which I think is a very fruitful view, a view which also is being employed by people like Christina Bigari, who's working on social norms, the distinction between the political, the social, and the ethical become very fluid, and that leads to a bigger project, trying to understand all these things in some sense as, as part of one big story. Well, that's right, but... Um, and uh, the, the bringing in of, of the Hegelian background and some of your interests in uh, British idealism uh, more generally uh, is important. Um, but there's also this other aspect of the, uh, I was about to call it ambitiousness, but we might call it lack of modesty, um, <laughs> in, uh, in um, bringing together uh, uh, considerations from game theory and decision theory and some of the evolutionary stuff uh, and the cognitive science stuff on the moral emotions. I wonder if you can uh, say something again methodologically about why you think it's important. Is it seems uh, from reading your book and uh, reading uh, much of your other work, it seems that one of the themes that runs through uh, Jerry Gauss's philosophical work is um, a concern to bring um, as much uh, uh, as many considerations from outside of philosophy to bear on philosophical problems. Perhaps a, a way to approach that is a bit of autobiogra autobiography. Sure. My advisor, John Chapman, I, I studied in the political science department, uh, and John Chapman you know, impressed upon us that political philosophy was a synthetic enterprise, that we're trying to figure out what sort of social life is appropriate to humans as we know them and acceptable to humans as we know them. But to answer this question, one can't just divorce the right from what we know about humans or divorce what we know about humans from what we know about the context in which humans develop and humans cooperate and humans live. So if political philosophy is a synthetic enterprise, trying to understand what it is for humans to live together in acceptable ways, one can't say I'm a philosopher, but I'm not really interested in the way social norms develop because social norms are one of the ways in which humans have found out how to live. 
one can't say I'm a philosopher, but I really don't care much about strategic interaction among individuals because one of the aspects of humans living among each other is that they confront strategic interactions. So to the extent, as I have always thought that political philosophy is a synthetic view of trying to understand what an acceptable human life is, given that humans live together in cooperative relations, it's very hard to say I'm a philosopher, but I'm not a social theorist. I am a philosopher, but I don't care much about economics. That one has to understand us as social creatures. And although people say that in philosophy, that typically is a way of making actually a very narrow claim. But when you really take seriously that we're social creatures with a psychology and a history, then what we know about the psychology, the history, the economics, the rationality, I think are necessary parts of a plausible picture of what it means for humans to live together in acceptable ways. So, um, uh, so let me just um, sort of segue a little bit because um, one of the dangers, I think, and, and part of what drives um, some uh, uh, philosophers who are working on normative issues, what drives the reluctance to take this this path to pull in from. Uh, uh, disciplines other than philosophy is uh, they worry that um, part of what drives some of the more empirically minded uh, approaches to uh, broad questions about social cooperation and how we live together socially is that um, a lot of these empirical programs have sometimes as their explicit aim the denial that there are distinctively philosophical questions uh, that are being pursued. Um, and uh, just to now move into uh, uh, one of the, I think, very crucial and important uh, um, arguments that runs through your book, begins in one of the early chapters and then gets uh, spelled out further, is this argument against uh, what we might call, very broadly speaking now, instrumentalism. Now, um, I take it that um, I'm about to ask you to explain what instrumentalism is and, and why you think it fails, but I take it that one of the um, uh, motivations behind uh, uh, this uh, this kind of approach, um, empirically driven, interested in behavior in some very uh, easily observable and quantifiable way, is ultimately the denial that there are distinctively normative philosophical questions there to begin with. Um, so let me ask then two questions. One is um, uh, how you think um, one can uh, draw from the empirical uh, sources and the non-philosophical sources that I think you're quite right to to have concerns with and to find out what, uh, uh, you know, uh, moral psychologists are saying about human development and these sorts of things. Uh, how you can draw from that without uh, uh, putting philosophers out of business. That's one kind of question. The other kind of question then is really just to get us back uh, into the, uh, to the heart of the book now, The Order of Public Reason, which is to talk about what uh, our listeners might find to be the sort of obvious, commonsensical uh, solution to the problem uh, uh, that the book addresses, uh, which is a view, uh, actually it's a family of views called instrumentalism, which is uh, a main target, I think, uh, uh, of, of your book. Well, to answer first the question about whether I want to put moral philosophers out of business. Right. Um, maybe. <laughs> If, if moral philosophy means what I think it too often means, is sort of a moral legislation where the philosopher goes off on her own, reads the work of people with whom she's sympathetic, and then writes and tells us sort of what morality is um, on the basis of her own 
introspection into her own moral consciousness and the engagement with a few usually like-minded moral philosophers. That's a conception of moral philosophy that I find quite pernicious. Um, it's pernicious in the following sense. It encourages our students, for example, to believe that moral theory is simply a menu of many different views, each one insisting that they're uniquely correct, each one more or less divorced from any evidence, very small basis for evaluation, each one saying that the other ones are immoral or unjust. There's a sense in which that sort of moral theory I think we could do without. Do I mean that the empirical work solves all our normative questions? No, it certainly doesn't do that. There's a, the, there's a distinction but not a barrier between the empirical and the normative. And I realize that in this sort of Hegelian or Bayer-Strassen tradition and also the early Rawls tradition, which I'm operating in, it's not denying that the empirical doesn't answer the normative questions, but it does say that once we understand the feasibility constraints, understand the problems we're confronting, we will see that the normative questions are fra framed in certain ways that perhaps limit the normatively possible, also make some options not really acceptable normatively. So there's a sense of one sort of moral philosopher that I would love to put out of business, and that is the moral philosopher who thinks that the introspection of their own moral consciousness is their main job. But I don't think this ever puts moral philosophy out of business. But that means the moral philosopher does have to intelligently look at empirical work. Because you're right, you, as you entirely correctly pointed out, there are empirical works which are just as imperialistic as some moral philosophers are. Some moral philosophers say, we have the truth about all these things and all truths about all oughts. And all the empirical guys can tell us is about is's, which aren't really very important. There are some empirical works who say, oh, those oughts don't matter at all. We just have to look at the way the world is. Both of those views are obviously objectionable, then, which means an intelligent moral philosopher has to read the empirical work intelligently for the findings that reveal feasibility constraints, reveal that human societies confront some problems regularly, and they regularly gravitate to some sorts of solutions. And does that tell us anything about what moral solutions are feasible? So it does become a messy game. And I'm often sort of criticized of denying the, the Izzat distinction. And I don't deny the Izzat distinction, but I do deny that there's a strong gap between is's and oughts. And often understanding the way the world is gives us a good deal of leverage on the way it ought to be. And I don't think we can make very many intelligent um, judgments about the way it ought to be without having a pretty firm knowledge about the way it is and what sorts of problems humans confront again and again and how they typically try to solve them. So that's my answer to your, right. your question about we have enough unemployment already do we put moral <laughs> philosophers out of business too? And This question is some unemployment's not as bad as others. <laughs> Um, but what about the second, uh, the second part of the question now, just to sort of move into uh, discussing the actual uh, very exciting um, uh, moves that you make in, in the book. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about instrumentalism, which again uh, seems to be the, uh, in, in many ways in philosophy and, and perhaps also in, in political theory that gets done elsewhere out of philosophy departments, uh, a real contender for uh, the, the main frame for explaining 
uh, authority and our social life and our political life. Um, and it, uh, again, it's a uh, main, uh, I think, target uh, or, or I should say main aspiration of your book to, uh, uh, to show that instrumentalism can't do the job that uh, many instrumentalists claim that it can. Um, so could you tell us a little bit about instrumentalism? Tell us about how it is alleged to be or presented as a solution to uh, this three-pronged sort of problem of trying to fit together uh, these various uh, commitments that are typical among liberal philosophers. And then tell us a little bit about your criticism of instrumentalism as a solution. Great. Uh, I'm glad you brought up the three prongs. So remember the three prongs that I think are need to be reconciled is, first of all, the reality of deep disagreement, second, the principle that no one has natural authority over anyone else, and third, that this sort of social authority is necessary for social life. That is, for me to enter your life and to tell you what to do, this sort of interpersonal authority relation is absolutely central. The way I understand instrumentalism is an attempt to say that that third prong isn't necessary, that we don't really need this interpersonal authority. The instrumentalists ask, how could we live together in cooperative relations with others without this sort of interpersonal authority? And in the history of political philosophy, I think the most persuasive answer has come from what I call these instrumentalists. That is, if each uses her own reasoning about how to best achieve her goals, she'll be able to see that on the conditions that others also constrain themselves she will do best by following constraining rules, just only on the basis of what she really cares about. David Godier is, of course, the outstanding example of contemporary political philosophy of right. this view. Now, on this view, reason is essentially private reason. One's trying to figure out from one's own perspective what best achieves one's ends. And people like Godier and many, almost all the instrumentalists, would have us believe that if we reason simply from our private perspective, we will see that each person from her own private perspective has reason to constrain herself according to moral rules. That is, the best thing for her to do, given her own goals, is for her to be the sort of person who constrains her own goals. Now, as I say in the book, this is a really, I think, attractive proposal in the following sense. According to our first prong, Private reason sets the problem. We disagree about morality. We have different goals. We have different ends in life. And this disagreement causes conflict in human society. This is the great lesson from Hobbes. But the instrumentalists want to argue that from within our own private reason, we can solve the problem that private reason confronts us with. Private reason confronts us with the problem of disagreement. Private reason can solve the problem of disagreement by telling us each from our own perspective to adopt rules that tell us to constrain the pursuit of our goals. So in some sense, what the instrumental, instrumentalist promises is we're going to get the result of constraining moral rules, but we don't need interpersonal social authority. We just need each person to reason well and correctly about what is the best way for her to achieve her goals. And we will agree on these constraining rules and each person out of her own private reason will agree to constrain herself by these rules. Mm -hmm. So <clears throat> I go through a number of different reasons why I think this really cool proposal fails. In a way, you know, of course, to oversimplify, there's sort of two basic problems with this view, and they're both raised by the fool in Leviathan. 
Right. Now, the fool asks whether there really is justice and why should he bother with rules of justice when he can get away with injustice. And the first problem then is that if my only interest in these moral rules is as a way to promote my own goals, then why shouldn't I violate the rules when I can promote my own goals by, better by doing so? I'll have uh, plenty of opportunities for cheating. Why shouldn't I take these opportunities for cheating? Godier and a number of others have tried to show why it's rational never to take the opportunities for cheating, but all those proposals, I think, end up being pretty implausible if one really can do better given one's goals by violating a rule, then instrumental reason must instruct one to violate the rules. In Hobbes's reply to the fool, Hobbes suggests to the fool, well, you're not going to do so well because you're going to get caught. And that's the second thing that instrumentalists have emphasized, that those rules will be enforced by others. Not that they have authority in some sense over you, but simply out of their own interests, they will react to cheaters and won't will either punish them or will boycott with them. And seeing that you'll be boycotted or punished, and they'll do that only for their own private reason in order to better advance their goals, you will want to avoid that punishment, and so you will abide by the constraining rules. There's two problems, at least two, many more problems than that, which confront the proposal. And first of all, punishment's a public good. It's something which helps the whole system, but it's costly for the individual. And the instrumentalist only has reason to supply that good if the person's own goals are advanced by supplying that good. And one of the things we know is that under those conditions where people are only concerned with their own ends, public goods like that are always massively undersupplied. And secondly, even if I have a case where it does make sense for me to invest in this public good of enforcement, well, I will boycott those who violate the rules, I have to know what sorts of people it makes sense for me to invest in and boycott them, and what sorts of people who it doesn't make sense for me to punish because I can't change their behavior. But that requires a tremendous amount of information to know whom I should pay attention to and whom I shouldn't. So the information problems and the incentive problems end up, I think, in empirical research shows and some model shows that the instrumentalists can't solve those problems, and so the instrumentalists hope that simply by reasoning on the basis of our own ends, we'll be able to achieve social order. Plausible and exciting as it is, ends up not being able to be implemented given the information costs, given the incentive structures which it sets up for itself. Very good. So um, it looks then that what is needed uh, if we're going to solve this, uh, this, this, three, this problem of reconciling these three kinds of commitments is some kind of what we might think of as intrinsically social morality. That is a social morality that is not sort of riding piggyback, one might say, on more individualistic, private, uh, purely instrumentally rational considerations. And so one of the... Um, uh, moves that you make then on the way towards developing your own solution to this problem is to consult some of uh, some considerations from uh, evolutionary moral psychology and the rest to try to show how um, some 
what we might call sort of intrinsically or essentially social moral rules develop. And particularly you have, I think, just a wonderful term. I don't know if it's your own coinage or if it's a term that comes out of literature, rule-following punishers. Um, I wonder if you could say, uh, just again, on the way towards the, 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 the full Jerry Gauss uh, solution, it seems that the, 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 the naturalness or the natural emergence uh, of rule-following punishers from ordinary social interactions is a crucial element, of, at least at the beginning of this uh, attempt to solve this problem. Could you tell us a little bit about what rule-following punishers are and how they emerge and uh, some of the really fascinating, I should say, uh, 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 empirical data that you bring to bear uh, on the question? Rule-following punishers is probably the only meme I've ever going to contribute to philosophy. So actually, it's, <laughs> but it's so good. <laughs> so one's good enough. Um, so here's the problem. The, at the, after our investigation of instrumentalism, we're left with the idea that purely instrumental reasoners can't possibly solve the problems. So perhaps we need rule followers. And there is a lot of empirical literature on rule followers. But the problem in philosophy has always been this seems ad hoc. Philosophers have always assumed that it makes sense as a default idea that, of course, we reason to pursue our own goals, but the idea that we pursue roles, that just seems ad hoc. Um, so one of the, the real sources of reluctance, I think, in the philosophical literature has to, to adopting a view of humans as rule followers is to avoid this idea that it's ad hoc in order to solve a problem. I try to overcome the ad hoc charge by showing cultural evolution models of the sort developed by Boyd, Richardson, and Gintis, experimental psychology of the sort by Fair on people's tendency to punish, also cognitive psychology about what it means to follow a rule. All these three fields converge on the idea that successful groups of cooperators have to be these rule-following punishers. In the models of social evolution I talk about, it turns out that in almost any group, a no matter how cooperative it is, how, how wonderful people are following cooperative rules, it can almost always be invaded by defectors, Hobbesian fools who are always cheat whenever they can get away with it. As the, effect, the defectors do better and better than the cooperators, but typically they take over the whole group. But when the whole group is taken over by defectors, the groups fail. So there's this interesting problem in social and cultural evolution. This is not necessarily about biological evolution, about how groups maintain their ability to be cooperative. And it seems to maintain their ability to be cooperative, there has to be both a tendency of a, most of the population to follow cooperative norms when other people follow cooperative norms, but there also has to be a tendency of at least most of the population to punish those who refuse to obey the cooperative norms. Now notice these punishers are sort of altruistic. Um, these punishers are willing to expend their own resources to enforce norms even when it doesn't benefit them. Remember, one of the problems of instrumentalism is the instrumentalist will only do something if he knows it's a good investment for him. And when is punishment a good investment? These rule-following punishers don't worry about investments. They react. One of my favorite examples that I give my students in class is whether they're instrumentalists or rule-following punishers, is they're going through a parking lot, and as with many parking lots, there's a long string of parking spaces that are reserved for handicapped that are all empty, 
And then after the handicapped spaces, all the regular spaces are filled. They're following a car down this row, and an obviously healthy young person turns to the handicapped space and gets out. If they're instrumentalists, there's a sense in which they should rejoice because they wouldn't use the handicapped space, but that means the closest non-handicapped space has now been opened up for them. Very few people say, oh, thank God he turned into the handicapped space because that opens up for me a better space. Rather, we just get outraged that they're cheating on the rules. That's right. Humans are really good cheater detectors, and they want people to obey the rules even when it's worse for them that the rules obey. It would be better for you if the healthy person turned into the handicapped space and opened up the next available one that's not handicapped for you, but you're willing to nevertheless insist that they follow the rules, even at a cost to yourself. And this seems to be a large amount of literature seems to be converging on this idea of altruistic punishers as really crucial to social cooperation. So in summary, I think the rule-following punishers have three really important characteristics. First of all, they have a tendency to internalize social rules, and they care about social rules for their own sake, to some extent, when enough others also comply with social rules. So they're conditional compliers. They're interested in the compliance of others, and they monitor others' compliances. They're nosy when it comes to morality. They are really good at cheater detection. Really interesting studies is one of the first really firm human capacities, uh, competencies, that come with four-year-olds is the, is the ability to detect cheaters on social rules. It's, we might be good at lots of things, but we're great at detecting cheaters, which is, I think, an indication of the social and authoritative nature of morality that we make other people's moral action our business. And thirdly, as I said, these rule-following punishers are willing to expend their own resources to some extent to ensure that other people are compliers. They'll boycott other people, though say that they're angry with other people, they'll support social efforts to punish other people. All of these three characteristics, I think, help us see that there's a really interesting evolutionary account, which is supported by experimental evidence about the tendency of people to be third-party punishers, all of which suggests that this view of morality as involving mutual authority and mutual interest in each other's actions isn't just a philosopher's hypothesis, but actually seems a very effective way in which society solved the problem of cooperation under disagreement. Well, well, excellent. So, but can you um, just picking up on this? So, uh, the first point of those last uh, the three points that you elaborated, you, you mentioned the the term internalizing the rules. Um, and uh, I'd like you to say a little bit about that because it seems as though, uh, in the order of public reason, uh, one of the the, the real the real crucial points is that um, the role of the altruistic punisher or the rule-following punisher is um, in some sense uh, a natural extension of or outgrowth of um, certain kinds of uh, um, moral psychological tendencies that uh, – you know, reactive attitude sorts of considerations uh, that you're, you're very keen uh, uh, to uh, – make reference to and to employ. And just to say, you know, one of the, the nice uh, um, uh, 
features of the book is that uh, insofar uh, as it's a attempt to reconcile these these three different kinds of commitments, it's also in part an exercise in retrieving, as you said earlier, uh, some of the stuff that was lost in the Rawlsian hurricane. And particularly, it's that Strawson buyer, uh, and in some ways, Stanley Ben sort of uh, a move to try to show that our social and political lives really are, in some way, the extension of uh, what we tend to regard as sort of healthy moral attitudes or the kinds of moral attitudes we have when we're taking morality seriously. So uh, could you tell us a little bit about this this claim that the the role, the social role of sort of caring about the rules, as you as you put it, and the willingness to punish even at expense to yourself those who violate the rules, uh, how is that connected to your conception of moral emotions and some of the moral psychological uh, considerations that you raise in the book? Really nice. That's a really helpful question. So there's one question is about sort of our first person attitudes towards the moral rules, how we think of the moral rules. We internalize them, we care about them, we're willing to punish. Right? So one, the first thing to understand when you want to understand what it is to have moral rules is why we would adopt this first person attitude of claiming authority. But then the second question is what, given our understanding of moral life, is required for these claims to be successful. Remember, we have three problems. One is the problem of disagreement, which we've been talking about. One is the problem that we're free and equal. Third is the problem that morality requires authority. We've talked about the problem of disagreement, and we've talked now about the problem of why morality requires authority. There's, then there's a second question. What is it to treat others as free and equal? And could we solve the problem? by eliminating that. We could say, well, yes, there's disagreement. Yes, we need authority. But perhaps the real problem is this idea that we somehow have to treat others as free and equal. The Strassonian reactive attitudes discussion of the book is in some sense a response to this position, which I call moral authoritarianism. The moral authoritarian says, yes, we need authority. Yes, there's disagreement. Who should have authority? Either those who are correct or those who are justified in believing they're correct. My own claims to certainty give me some basis for claiming authority over you. And I see this as a quintessential authoritarian view. The authoritarian tells us that we should do as she says because she knows best whether we can see it or not. I think that there are many people who are actually attracted to what I call more authoritarianism. And in fact, I think many people believe that this somehow is part of our normal practice. That is part of our normal practice is that morality tells us what to do. The authority comes from morality directly. And when I tell another person what to do, I'm not claiming authority over them. I'm simply telling them what moral morality says. It's the authority of morality, which is doing the work, not my authority. The Strassonian reactive attitudes discussion is meant to show that this view of morality, the authoritarian view of morality, is in fact a highly revisionist view of morality. It doesn't conform to our moral practices. Not only, from the earlier discussion, are we committed to this first-person understanding that we're authoritative, we're also then committed to what Darwell calls a second-person view, that our claims to authority must, in some sense, have uptake by from others. The, Basic analysis goes something like this. The Strassonian reactive attitudes, especially resentment, indignation, also the emotion of guilt, have a presupposition that 
those on whom we press moral claims have, in some sense, access to the reasons that they should comply with the moral claims. It's not simply that I'm right, it's that I am saying something which is right, perhaps, but which they have reason to accept. This is a valid claim on them. Whereas the moral authoritarian says that being right or being justified, thinking oneself is right is sufficient, I think that our moral practices, and especially the role of reactive attitudes, show that more is required. That is, that there has to be a reasonable expectation that the person on whom we're pressing the claim can see the reasons for it. If that's not the case, then our moral emotions, as they now exist in our moral practices, end up being unjustified. So, at this point, I want to press the authoritarian into a dilemma. Either they acknowledge that pressing moral claims on others does require some validation from what Darwell called the second-person standpoint, in which case they have to give up authoritarianism, or they have to press their authoritarian view, but then they have to accept that their view turns out to be a radically revisionist understanding of what morality should be like, and things essential to morality as the Strasonian reactive attitudes have to either be abandoned or radically reconceptualized. Right. Well, excellent. So the thought then is that, as I'm as I'm hearing you and as I read in the book, that um, the way to reconcile sort of what we might call, uh, as you uh, put it just a minute ago, uh, our freedom and equality, that is the, the no natural authority uh, prong of the three prongs, with um, the idea that there, there could be public authority despite disagreement is that it's possible uh, when one makes a claim on another or one commands another to do something or one uh, uh, attempts to um, in some way punish someone for something that they've done or failed to do, one way to reconcile that with the freedom and equality of the person who's being uh, made a claim on or the person who is being commanded is to see the command or the claim always as a kind of reminding of the person of what reasons they already have. Is this right? Well, in some sense, that's exactly right. right? This, this is ex at this point, we're sort of led to, I think, the third way of avoiding the conflict, the one which I think is inadequate, but which points the way to inadequacy. And that way is the Kantian-Rawlsian idea that despite our differences in private reason, we can abstract to some sort of common viewpoint in which we can all endorse the authority of social morality. There's a sort of positive liberty view behind this, that right. if we're all not only the subjects of morality, but as members of the realm of ends, we're also legislators in the realm of morality, then my claim that you comply with morality is not the complaint of a, simply of a legislator to a subject, but it's the claim of two legislators against each other, both who believe that this legislation is the one which they themselves would adopt. Um, so the Rawlsian view, I think, ends up trying to reconcile the three claims of disagreement of free and equal persons and the necessity of authority by trying to abstract from our disagreements the some sort of common viewpoint in which we all could see that despite our disagreements, there is something we all share, and the basis of this sharing gives us the, the grounds for a common legislation in which, as members of the realm of ends, we're all free. Right. Yeah. But the, 
your positive view is 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 different from that, though, right? Well, the problem with the you know, the Rawlsian Kantian view, I think, is the great insight. Rawls, Kant, Rousseau are in some way the heroes here. But the problem, to go back to our our trilemma, right. <laughs> the problem is that it achieves its solution by radically limiting the extent to which the first problem, that of the disagreement of private reason, actually poses a problem for us. And on this Kantian view, we can set aside our disagreements, and there will still be enough in common that we can see we can have a common legislation. But the real problem is, is it the case that once we abstract from all our disagreements, we will be left, A, with enough to legislate in common, and B, even if we do have enough to legislate in common, once we're aware of our full range of values and commitments and religious beliefs, will we still endorse what we legislated from the abstract perspective? Rawls, I think, was particularly obsessed with this last problem. Even if we abstract successfully to the original position, the freestanding argument, once we're aware of our full range of values and commitments, will we still uphold the judgments of the original position? In my view, the problem with the Kantian Rawlsian view is it tries to solve the problem essentially by ignoring the real depth of disagreement. And I think Rawls, in the end, also believed this. As Rawls says, the problem with the theory of justice is it didn't really take seriously the fact of reasonable pluralism. I think we can see Rawls moving in political liberalism to a view where there is no definitive understanding of what constitutes the public point of view, but there are multiple reasonable understandings. And that then leads to sort of my positive solution of how to integrate this insight that once we abstract, once we look at what we share, or once we look at a common legislative perspective, we're always going to find disagreement. And then how can we continue on with this Kantian, Rousseauian legislative project when we know we won't agree about the legislation. Right. And so you, um, in, in your positive proposal now, now moving uh, away from the, the part of the book that's about our sort of internal social moral, moral lives and to the more political uh, end of, of the theory. Um, so you've got a a view, a deliberative model that in some ways uh, is um, like the Rawlsian view. We're trying to construct or think of or imagine our way into a position that is appropriate uh, from the point of view of the kind of uh, question we have to ask, which is what are the political rules that we're or the moral social rules that we're going to collectively live by? And you introduce this conception of a member of the public. Now, this is not a veil of ignorance, original position line. And uh, I think you just uh, said some very helpful things to explain why. Um, so could you tell us about uh, this alternate deliberative model, uh, which provides for you the position from which we're supposed to think about our political rules and political authority uh, more generally? Great, great. That that's the question. Um, so the question, think we can think of it as this: accepting that, as I do, that this Kantian, Rawlsian, Rousseauian insight that if we could legislate the rules in common, then we would be free and yet subject to them. How can we continue on this project when we know that our disagreements in private reason will arise even at the legislative stage? 
Much of what I say here turns out, I think, to be very close to some of the main themes in Amatra Sen's book on, idea, on the idea of justice, which I'm a great fan of, although many people aren't. Um, so suppose that instead of abstracting from all our differences and trying to have a, a common shared perspective, what we do is we just abstract from our most obvious failures. We abstract from our failures of rationality in, in serious senses. We abstract from our informational limitations when they're very serious and obvious. And instead, we moderately idealize in the following sense. We suppose that individuals are good-willed, they're interested in a morality that all free and equal people can accept, they're concerned to some extent with treating each other as free and equal, they have reason reasonable procedures for may, for deciding these issues. We disagree about exactly how we should go about it, but no one's doing crazy things. We have no Nazis or psychopaths. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're left then with among them, these are my members of the public, these moderately idealized individuals, deep disagreements about what should be done. And one way of trying to see how they might solve the problem, a simplified way, is to suppose these individuals are deliberating about some current rule of our morality, um, property rules of some sort, or perhaps rules about children and the protection of children and what rights parents have over children. Some propose that the current rule is certainly a good rule and they endorse it and others have alternatives. This procedure is very much like what Rawls had in mind in his first essay, Justice is Fairness. If you remember, Rawls says, People confront social practices that are already up and running. There's no question of us creating new social practices. The question is, under what basis we will issue complaints about these social practices. One way of modeling this is that what alternative social practices do you think there would be would be better? Are these social practices right? Because we have disagreements about private reason, we're going to disagree about these things. But suppose... Again, to simplify more than I do in the book, suppose that each member of the public could order these proposals. Many of the proposals will endorse the current practice. Some will think rank the current practice as lower, and there'll be moral philosophers who will think they can do better. And we can imagine a, a full ranking. Now, at this point, this is why I sort of emphasize my debts to Sen, we're faced with the familiar problem in social choice theory. We have a set of different individuals ordering a set of alternatives. Contractualists tend to be proponents of the unanimity principle of how to select from that. That is, only if an alternative is socially preferred by everybody, it's preferred by everyone, should it be the socially preferred alternative. So the first our contractualists might do is apply the social choice version of unanimity principle. If in everyone's ranking X is preferred to Y, then X should be socially preferred to Y. So we could, first thing we could do, is using the so-called Pareto principle, we can eliminate some proposals. If everyone thinks they're worse than another proposal in the set, we can eliminate them. But I conjecture that many proposals would still be left. Because we have all these disagreements, it's extraordinarily unlikely that we're going to agree what's the best in this set. So we might, if we can try to make some progress, we might think of the Kantian question. Which of the remaining principles does one really have reason to will as part of our morality, and which of the remaining principles could one simply not will as a moral rule to guide one's life? We could formalize this Kantian idea by asking each of our members of the public, 
to insert to her ordering no moral rule in this matter at all. Right. At this point, then, they have an ordering in which some options are above the no moral rule, and these are options which they have sufficient reasons to endorse as opposed to there being no moral rule, and anything below that no moral rule option, they have insufficient reasons to adopt as a moral rule. So now we can apply our unanimity, unanimity principle a second time. Only if for everyone, X is better than no moral rule, could X be an eligible moral rule in this community. So these two invocations of the unanimity principle will leave us with what I call an optimal eligible set. Every member of the set is better than no rule, and there's no rule in the set that all can agree to is better than any others. In fact, again, showing my debts to Matra Sen, we're left with what he has called a maximal set. Each member of the maximal set is preferred to all alternatives outside the maximal set, but from the social perspective, we're unable to say whether any member of the maximal set is better than anyone, any other member. One of the really fundamental contributions I think that Sen has made to social choice theory has been to show that it's rational for us to select from maximal sets. Remember, a maximal set, we can't order the options within the set, but we know that the options within the set are better than options ranked below it. And Sen's great example is a Birdian's ass. As you know, the problem of Birdian's ass is the ass is midway between two barrels of hay. If it turns right, it gets one turns left, it gets another, but it's exactly equidistant between the two. As Sen points out, there's two interpretations of the ass's problem. One is that the ass is just indifferent. The ass is ranks that the, uh, the hay on the right is just as good as the hay on the left, and the hay on the left is just as good as the hay on the right. And I think Sen rightly says this is not a terribly interesting problem, because the opportunity costs of the choice are essentially not a problem. In some sense, as Sen points out, it's a trivial. It's the same choice you have if someone says, here's a black, two identical black Lexus, things you've dreamed about, you can have one of them. It doesn't seem like a terrible choice confronting you. Right. The more interesting problem is that the ass has been unable to say whether the left-hand bundle is better, worse, or just as good as the right-hand bundle, whether the right-hand bundle is just as good, better, or worse than the left-hand. He can't rank them at all. Now, here's the ass has an interesting problem. He can't decide which bundle is better. The only thing he can say is that the left-hand bundle is better than starving, the right-hand bundle is better than starving, but he can't choose which is better at all. This is choice under what Sen says is incompleteness. He has an incomplete ranking. The interesting thing that Sen has shown is only an ass doesn't choose in this sort of right. ranking. My members of the public are faced with just this sort of incomplete ranking of alternatives. They've been able to rank the alternatives to some extent, but given that I'm taking this first prong of reasonable disagreement really seriously, they're going to have an incomplete ranking. So they're left with this maximal set. Then the problem for both social morality and for politics throughout the rest of the book is how do we choose among the maximal set? If we're going to have a common social morality, that respects everyone as free and equal, we have to have some ways of choosing one from this maximal set. Sen has shown us that it's rational to choose, but we still don't know how we're going to do it. And the rest of the book is divided, first of all, between formal social processes, which try to show how social 
evolutionary process can help us select from the maximal set, and then political processes, another way to help us choose from the maximal set. And those political processes are democratic, democratic. Am I right? Um, again, I believe we're confronted with a maximal set of possible democratic procedures. We can't say exactly whether proportional representation is better than first past the post system. We have reasonable arguments about this. I do believe that all democratic procedures are in the maximal set and there's no non-democratic procedures in the maximal set. Again, we have to think social evolutionary process help us choose a particular democratic procedure. Having that particular democratic procedure then allows us to continue on with lots of maximal sets we confront over lots of policy issues, which then we are allowed to select one of a controversial number of alternatives, which nevertheless treats all as free and equal. So no, so no non-democratically produced public policy or law can be legitimate or can be consistent with social morality. Is that right? It couldn't be legitimate. It couldn't have authority right. because it's selected. Now, of course, it could be that a non-democratic procedure you know, happens to pick out something which is justified anyway by social right. morality. But certainly being chosen by such a procedure doesn't give it authority. Right. Yep. Right. Well, Jerry, um, we've taken uh, a lot of your time, and this has been a really wonderful uh, discussion of your book, The Order of Public Reason. I've got one last question, uh, if I can just have another minute or so. Um, what happens next? What's the next project? What are you working on now? Well, I've been talking with a publisher on a, a book on the tyranny of the ideal. Um, as you know, there's some debate these days about ideal versus non-ideal theory. I want to suggest not only is non-ideal theory a good thing to be doing, but the tendency to press towards an ideal is a tendency to limit reasonable pluralism, to use controversial methods of aggregation, and the belief that ideal justice, that there's an optimal theory of justice, is the best theory of justice, not only does it turn out to be implausible, but I think it has, in some sense, authoritarian and tyrannical implications. So I want to suggest, again, following, I think, some themes of Matrasen, that sort of a justice that really is consistent with a life in a pluralistic and diverse society is always going to be a non-ideal justice where we have incomplete orderings and we do our best to choose among incomplete orderings. Um, we often share, as Sen says, uh, more justified views about certain pairwise choices than we choose about than we have about what the ideal is. Well, that sounds very exciting, and we'll uh, keep an eye out for that. And uh, when it comes out, maybe we'll have another conversation on this podcast. Um, thank you so much for your time, Jerry. Um, the book is "The Order of Public Reason" by Gerald Gauss. Uh, thank you for listening, everyone. Take care, Jerry. Thank you, Bob. Thanks a lot. You've been listening to my interview with Professor Gerald Gauss of the University of Arizona. We were talking about his new book, The Order of Public Reason, published by Cambridge University Press. I am Robert Talese, your host. This is New Books in Philosophy. Thank you for listening.